Y'all hear me well enough? Check my mic's on. Maybe. Yeah. You're fine. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, that'll work. Thank you, Ronnie. Didn't know you're the tech guy around here. <laughs> Pretty talented, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. They're saying, the I can't even start my sermon yet. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh Lord, how am I supposed to? Really bad kid. All right, if you want to set a marker in your Bible for Genesis chapter 3. Yeah, we're going to be in the beginning. Not the very beginning, but close to the beginning. I think it's funny. I don't know. It's like every every uh, Bible class when we're listening to Ray, it's like it's almost, what he says, it's always almost lining up. What I'm saying? That's, on, pur that's on purpose, I think. I think that's pretty divine prophecy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, which kind of, he mentioned something which kind of leads me to say this, is that many see this book as a collection of unrelated uh, stories. A lot of people really see this book that way. I even think a lot of Christians see this book this way. as a bunch of unrelated individual stories that have nothing to do with each other. And uh, outsiders would probably say that this is a book of Jewish randomness, uh, superstitious thought, and of absurd rules with these moral hits of goodness kind of spread here and there throughout. And It'd be pretty true, yes, to recognize that the Bible has plenty of stories and has multiple genres, multiple archetypes, and multiple moral pillar points all in this literary uh, novel, some would think it is. But from the inside looking in, you didn't really know what this story's bigger picture was, and you think this Bible and this, this book, this word of God right here, is really just a, a bunch of unrelated, uh, chaotic mumbo-jumbo that doesn't have anything to do with it itself, with inside of it. But I want to tell you, and it's kind of what Ray was saying earlier, is that this book is actually not disconnected at all. Uh, and it's not just a book of recommendations. It's not even a book just to get wisdom from. It's not just a book to learn how to live a better life for yourself or for the people around you. In fact, the purpose of the book is none of those things. The central purpose of this book is actually to tell a story. And it's I think if we fail to grasp what the bigger picture of the bigger story is, we fail to understand the deeper or the more intricate individual stories and then the bits of wisdom and the moral goodness that we can find within this book. And uh, I think when you understand the purpose of the book, and the purpose of this book is the purpose and mission and ministry of God, you are going to understand a whole lot more. And I think when you read this book, which is the story of God and it's the story of man, and it's the love letter that's in between the two, you're going to start to see some things develop. I think when you get the bigger picture, doctrine happens, theology happens, I think life change happens for yourself too. And one of the central themes in this book, the core plot of truth is actually one of the central themes of life itself. Even if you didn't have this book, you would agree with the fact that death is a very central theme of this book. It is one thing that holds it all together. 
And uh, I would like to thank you. If you were to hold a cord and you were to punch a hole in every book of the Bible, you stream that cord through and hold it up like this, you would notice that, yes, it is all connected and that the same current theme, the same plot runs through every page and every dot of ink in this book. And uh, so what we're going to explore the next few weeks is actually going to be all about death. And we're going to see what, really what God's mission, his purpose, and his ministry is while we are living in a land of death. A desert or a wasteland, something like that. And so our goal today, ultimately, is to explore the origin of our greatest enemy, who is actually God's greatest enemy, and that's death. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 23. And uh, I just want to say, if you can have your Bibles out with me, I want you to trust me, but I want you to verify too. Right. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Bear with me. It's not totally short, but every single piece of it is important to what I have to say today. Um, it says in verse 1 that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasing to the eyes, and that it was also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and that they realized they were naked. So they sewed, sewed few fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and he said, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I've commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this have you done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate the fruit. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly all the days of your life. You will eat dust. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you not to eat from, cursed is the ground because of you. And through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life and it produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it were taken. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. Verse 20 says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and his wife, for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. Let's pray. 
So our Father is in heaven, Lord, all glory and honor to you. Thank you for your word that you have given us that is true and that is all connected and that is meant for our own lives uh, to do everything correctly according to your word. Uh, speak through me. Let your Holy Spirit rest upon me this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the beginning, God made it evident, chapter 1 and chapter 2, that his creation was good. He made it evident that man was actually very good. He called that. He actually, when he created man, he said, this is very good. This was his most prized creation. And good, I mean, is in a state of perpetual perfection. And to state the reality here, you cannot understand what that means because you've never witnessed what perfection really looks like from a consistent sense. And the best way, I think, actually to understand how everything is imperfect is actually to look at exactly what is imperfect to understand perfection. Let's look at the bad to understand what good really is. And I think really what is imperfect is all the disorder that we find that happens here. We call this the fall for the reason, for a reason. It's that everything, creation, the universe itself falls into a state of disorder. And it's funny because actually the second law of thermodynamics, this is physics here, says that the universe is disordered and is falling into a state of greater disorder. And I think it's all because of what happens here in Genesis chapter 3. And more practically, we can look into the world and we can examine what is this disorder, what is this death, and we look at it. And we can ask the question, really, you know, what's wrong? And we can come with the conclusion that something isn't right. That's how you look at the world, something isn't quite right. This is not exactly how it's supposed to be. And just to make you see it, let me make it a little more practical for you, just to make you understand just how not right this world is. How many of you were born before or during the Second World War? Y'all are embarrassed to raise your hand. Who was born <laughs> before or during the Second World War? Okay. World War II. You too? Okay. What can we gather from that? That war is disorder, right? It wasn't a good thing that happened. Good came out of it, but it wasn't a good thing that happened in and of itself. More of you should be able to raise your hand. How many of you remember the day Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas? You probably remember exactly where you were if you're old enough to have that memory. I don't think murder is good either. Murder is disorder. You've seen it. And all of us, as of very recently, have witnessed and have felt and experienced uh, a worldwide pandemic, right? And I, I go ahead and say that disease is disorder as well, right? And we see a whole lot more than that, okay? We live in a world of death and disorder in a nation that is full of death and is full of disorder. Uh, innocent people are murdered in their homes every day. That's pretty disorderly. We're murdering babies at a higher rate than that in this country. I think that's pretty disorderly. Um, nearly half of the people in this country will get cancer in their lifetime, and nearly 600,000 people per year will die of it in this country. I don't think that's very orderly either. I don't think that's the natural set of things. And more what we see, we see rioting, we see famine and drought, natural disasters, we see racism, we see greed, we see corporate corruption, the business level, we see divorce, we see broken homes, we see broken families, we see suicide, we see robbery, cheating, fraud, and we see active, uh, this proactive sexualization of society too. And 
It's all disorder. And so you know that something is not right, right? Something is not okay. And this is the reason I, I kind of got the slide right here. But it's because you were living in a land of death because of what happened 6,000 years ago in this chapter right here, Genesis chapter 3. And uh, there's nothing new under sun, under the sun. These disorders have been here forever. This is from the dawn of, you know, almost the dawn of creation uh, that there has been sin and death. And so what we're going to do is where did this come from? What does it mean? And our goal today is also just to give a preface to understand that I, let me just backtrack there. You can help us understand this better because I this is what helped me understand this better. I do take this, especially Genesis, I do take it very literal. But just because it's literal does not mean it does not have metaphorical implications. In fact, the Jewish writers wrote historically with metaphorical implications as well. So understand that as we read through this. And I think it'll make this bigger story of the Bible come to life. Okay? You know the story. You know Genesis chapter 3. This is Sunday School 101, right? You learned this in third grade in, in, in old Miss Debbie Reiner's class, you know? Me and, <laughs> me and Miss Debbie Reiner's class. And if we want to look at where sin begins because I think sin actually begins before the act of sin. And if you'll read those first few verses, if you look at them, it says there's a lot of questions going on. There's a lot of questions. Did God really say it? The serpent says. And I'm thinking through Adam and Eve's mind and thinking, okay, maybe I can. Surely I won't die after that. Surely that won't happen. That's ridiculous. And after that, what happens? Pride enters the situation and says, you know what? It's just me. It's okay. It's all right. I'll get away with it. Surely nothing. Surely I won't die. Nothing will happen. Why should I trust God's word? Probably the biggest one. And then this conclusion is that I'll never die, is what we find in the first few verses. If we read verse 6, actually we're going to kind of go verse by verse in this. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it, and she gave some to her husband as well. What First John would describe here, if you go read First John, describes this, one, as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so this is nothing new. This is here from the beginning, like I said. The tree was good in their eyes. It was pleasing to the flesh, okay? Now, knowledge comes from the tree. I want the knowledge. I want to take it. I want to, I want to be like God. I want to know everything. And then we have uh, the lust of the eyes. The fruit looks good. It was pleasing to the eye. It looks good, so I'm going to take it. And then it was also desirable for gaining wisdom, which is really the pride of life, which comes back again to what I want to be like God. I want to be wise. I want to be wise. Not for the wise and the sake of God, but for wise and the sake of my own self. What happens there? Sin walks into the door. Death walks into the door of Eden. And I decided I want to go ahead and cover this because I think it's interesting. I want to prepare you for the last huge question. Because people are going to ask you all the time if you talk to an atheist or an agnostic or something, why would God allow Adam and Eve to sin? You ever heard that question before? Well, why would, if God was good, why would he allow things to become ungood? You know, why would he allow Adam and Eve to sin? It's not that complicated. In fact, the first reason I say it is because God is sovereign. I think God is powerful enough to create us with the ability with the right to choose. I think in his power, he is able to almost Divest power into us and give it to us. 
And two is obviously that we're made in God's image. We read that in chapter one. We're made as creatures with what? With with the right to choose, with love created in our natural character, within our natural character, which models the Trinitarian God of the Bible, who is also love and who has the right to choose and to do as he does want to do. And so if you think it is God's nature to make man fallen, I don't think it is either necessarily. I think love is a grace freely given. I think God seeks love to be given to himself freely from us as an offering. I think he created that from the beginning. And with the power to choose, Adam and Eve instead abandoned God and chose not to love him. They chose to fulfill, like I said, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Adam and Eve knew it. They knew it in verse 7. And it says they knew their sinful nakedness, which is what, read verse 7 with me. It says, then the eyes of both of them were open and that they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so verse 7 is really projecting that Adam and Eve did know their condition. They knew their sinful nakedness. They knew they were guilty as charged. They understood that. And by their own means, it says they sewed fig leaves together. Like I said, let's take the metaphorical reasoning behind this. Let's understand what that means. They wanted to cover their nakedness by themselves. With their own words, they were going to try to make up for what they had done. Because they knew God was coming. They knew they were guilty. So they start trying to clean house. And so they cover up. I think that's the true meaning of that verse. Now, verse 8 says that, man and his wife heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of day and they hid from God among the trees of the garden. And so they know they're naked and so what do they do? They run and they hide from God. Which is really strange because I don't think you can really hide from the God that created you, right? It's kind of it's funny, but even in their sin nature, well, in their previous perfect nature before sin entered the world, they had nothing to be ashamed of before God. Now they are ashamed of before God. God is coming and God is coming to ask questions. And I think we find the same condition in ourselves when we, we do something wrong. We actually seek to run away from God and to flee from him because we think God is coming in vengeance and wrath. The truth of this verse, as we'll read, is that God is actually coming to Adam and Eve with grace and mercy. There is no sign of fire and brimstone in this verse, right? It's coming in grace and mercy. In verse 9, it says that the Lord God called to the man and asked, where are you? Why would God ask a question? Well, he knows the answer. He knows exactly where he is. Obviously, God knows where Adam is at, right? And I think God is actually trying to draw Adam out of his hiding to come before him so that God can give him grace. The problem there is that though God wants to display his grace, gentleness, and reconciliation, not fire and brimstone, Adam instead just digs the hole deeper. And God asks again, have you broke my one command, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And of course, his new nature, his unperfect nature, prompts him uh, in pride and in cowardliness and in unmanliness, I think, to heap the blame on the woman and the woman upon the serpent. And it's not to say that the woman and the serpent are not culpable, that they're not also guilty. Of course they are. But the point being made is that in sin, in nakedness, and in hiding, 
what mankind tries to do is tries to escape accountability. They escape accountability. And Adam felt his duty as a man to be accountable for himself and for his wife. And the sin of pride that he had said that really was trying to make up. He was innocent when in reality he wasn't. You are guilty. You are responsible for your rebellion, your sin, and death itself. You are responsible for that. And God will hold you to it. And that's what God is ultimately trying to do here. Trying to hold them to it in grace and in mercy. Verse 17, actually, if we skip down a little bit, says, To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of. Cursed is the ground. Through painful work you shall toil in order to eat. Literal and metaphorical. You see what how this is literal and metaphorical? Let me explain, because I used to not be able to. Work itself, or at least the strenuousness of work, is a result of sin and death. Originally, they had everything they needed and provided by God in the garden. Not to say that they didn't work, but they had plenty and work was not strenuous. And I think this is really signifying something greater more than just physical work. I think it's deeper. I think this verse is saying that apart from God's provision, no amount of work, no amount of comfort will ever satisfy you or give you what you need most. I think what verse 17 is saying is that we spend our whole life working for something that better than sin. We're all looking for satisfaction in something. We're all looking for comfort in something. And I think what God is saying here is that you are going to work the ground, you are going to spend your whole life looking for something that you won't ever get, which is a hint of what we'll read later. He says you're actually going to return to dust where you came from. And that promises to Adam, it promises to you, and it promises to me that we return to dust and we spend our time before we return to dust working for things that will never satisfy or give you. Verse 22 through 24, we'll skip down, says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And listen closely. It says that the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. What do we have so far? Hiding nakedness, hard work, pain of childbirth, among a couple different other things. But here at the end of Genesis 3, we actually see the culmination of all that. We see actually the grander consequence of sin and our sinfulness is what makes the land of death the land of death. Man is banished from the garden. Now, I want to assure you that this is true. I think there was a garden of Eden. I think Adam and Eve were banished from it. But I think this, again, is metaphorically alluding to something that was much deeper. This interconnectedness of the Bible that extends throughout the history of mankind is going on right here. Man is not just alienated from Eden. Man is alienated from God. Really, Eden, the picture of Eden that we get in the Bible is not that it's this necessarily this one specific place, in this one specific place on the earth. I think that it was, but I think what Eden represents in a deeper meaning is a place where God and man were together in perfect unity and perfect love and perfect wholeness. They walked together in the garden. 
That's what Eden is. Eden is perfection. Eden is where heaven and earth are together. Heaven and earth are separate now, but they didn't used to be. In the beginning, heaven and earth were one. And the framework, like I've said, of this union, this unity, this, this connectedness between God and man is tore apart by sin and by death. You see, what is being made totally clear here, and you will read through Romans and through everywhere else, is that mankind has lost total physical physical and spiritual wholeness and relationship with his creator. That's what we get from the get-go, that the exile that's being from the garden is because of the exclusivity and the holiness of God. Because he can't be with that thing. He can't be with this. That's not in his character. He is eternal life. How can death be anywhere near He is holy. So how can sin be anywhere near So that's what's going on here. Mankind is cut off from the Garden of Eden. And by your own works, and by your own striving, by your own trying to earn it, by your own trying to hide your nakedness, by your own running and fleeing from God, you will never be able to get back in. In fact, the reason God says that he sets cherubim outside, and he sets the flaming sword that crosses back and forth that will not allow anybody in, he puts that there to demonstrate that you will never be allowed to enter the presence of God again. It guards you from God, coming to God with your unholiness, and it guards you from ever receiving eternal life. It says at the end there, it guards them from going to the tree of life, from having eternal life, which is relationship with God. Perfect harmony. That's Eden. Heaven and earth are separated. Genesis chapter 3. You want to know why death is present? It's because the earth is cut off from its life source. It's cut off from heaven. It's cut off from God. The earth is dying, will die, and man will die with it because it is deprived of eternal life through its creator that it originally had. This is the peak of the curse, that the world has become a barren wasteland filled with death, that there is pain and there is mourning and there is famine, there is disease, there are natural disasters, among all sorts of other things that are products, that are results of living in a land of death. That's what happens because of this chasm that separates God and man. And so it's no wonder that Romans 8 says not only does man groan because he has no relationship with the Creator, it says all creation groans because it doesn't have a relationship with the Creator. All creation groans. The animals themselves, something's not right. Nature itself, something is not right because it's not in its intended order. It is in disorder. And so we follow through Genesis chapter 3 right here to explore the origin of death. But what if I told you that despite the terror and the decay and the disorder and the doom and the gloom and the, the despair and the death that originates from the sin of Adam, that this passage is actually depicting something more hidden. And it's hope. And it's a helper. Despite this land of death. There is light in the night, and there is life despite death. I purposely skipped over a couple of verses, two or three verses. I skipped over. Because I think if we would have just read through them and gave some brief explanation, I don't think we would have gotten a proper understanding of this. I say it for the end because I think we say the best for you. Most of us would miss it because so many of us think the Bible is all disconnected. And it's all disjointed. It has nothing to do with success. Mumbo jumbo, right? 
But the truth is, my friend was talking about, and this is what you should believe, is that God in this book is telling us that there is a grand plan of redemption and that there is a mission to restore creation. And it's right here. And it's not just right here in this book. It's actually right here in this chapter. In the worst chapter in the Bible, hope is found. So let's work backwards from the end. We have the separation, right? We have the division of heaven and earth, of God and man. It's all separated. And we have three catastrophes that have brought forth this division, being sin, Satan, and death. Yet in these verses, I would share, you are going to recognize and see that there are three promises, despite three catastrophes. Promise number one, verse 20. Read with me. It says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. <coughs> See that last word? It says life. It says living. I thought God said I was bringing in that death. <coughs> well, not necessarily. God's saying that death is really the separation. But through this, God is still going to multiply and subdue the earth through Adam and Eve. His promise remains. He hasn't broken it. Even because of sin, he hasn't broken his promise. And he's not dumping the creation. He's let life go upon a bit death. And that by God's redeeming grace is still extended to man to help him accomplish man's original goal, which is to fill and subdue the earth. He has something in the works that's far greater, I think, than what at this point man can comprehend. It's actually greater than what angels can understand. It's greater than what Satan can withstand. And so God will be at work through humanity's darkness. He will be at work through death. That's the first promise. The second promise is found in verse 21. Verse right. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Never noticed this. My cousin Seth never told me about this when we studied Genesis together. Do you see what just happened? God made garments of skin. Well, what do you mean, skin? God killed something. Did God kill something? Something had to die for their sin. Something had to die so that Adam and Eve may be clothed. That they may be covered in forgiveness. God's promise in verse 21 is that humanity and creation itself will be clothed again nevertheless. Even in chapter 3 of Genesis, the first two people who sinned will be clothed Despite their sin. That's the promise of God. That nakedness, his shamefulness, his guilt, and the death that comes because of it are not going to exist anymore because death by sacrifice has been provided on behalf of their own death. Okay? Life can come out of death. Why can life come out of death? Because from Genesis 3, from the get-go, there is life in the blood. You see the connection already? seeing the connection to the gospel right here in promise number two the original promise of clothing and of forgiveness and reconciliation by blood it's not a promise in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that's not where it begins it starts right in the start right from the get-go like I said because a thousand a few thousand years later another animal is going to be sent a lamb is actually going to be sent on behalf of the people. And that the lamb is actually going to wear your skin. The lamb is going to wear your sin and your death. And you get to wear the skin of his righteousness. 
The Lord God made garments of skins and clothed the man and woman. And God promises not to just clothe one man and one woman, but every man and every woman who will take the clothing. Promise number three, verse 15. There's a reason why this is in the middle of the chapter. Moses wrote on this for a reason. He says, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We all know the man in the land slain that we would have to go in a series, it's going to be all about him. It's going to be about death, but in the end, it's going to be all about him because he is who matters most. He triumphs death, right? The entire Bible is a story about life and death, right? In this chapter, in this book, in this verse, this entire Old Testament promises that someone is going to come and someone is going to come win the victory. That the offspring of Adam and Eve, right, who is the mother and the father of all living, the descendant of Abraham that we'll read about later, and the son of David that we'll read about later, is going to come. And that the son of God himself is going to come in humility. And though his heel will be bruised, although his heel will be striped, he'll, he'll receive some form of attack. It says in the second part of that verse that he is going to give a total blow to the enemy, which is Satan, which is death. And it's going to be complete. It's going to be 100%. And in that, he's going to begin this grand work to restore creation back to what it originally was, which is Eden, where it becomes two and one together again with God. He will reconcile those who run to God, not away from God, right? That's a promise. Another promise is that he will reconcile those who come to God with their brokenness, not those who hide their brokenness. The promise of Genesis chapter 3 is that he will reconcile those clothed in his skin of righteousness and not their own skin of righteousness. And that he will give resurrection life to a people living in a land of death, which is what we're looking at. The vision is gone. It will be done. The chasm will be crossed, and death will just be defeated. Amazing thing about Genesis chapter 3 is that the gospel is in the middle of a graveyard. Do you believe it? That the gospel is in the middle of a graveyard? Genesis 3. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you first that you're omniscient, that you're omnipotent, that you are so wise and so knowledgeable before our I mean, beyond our own understanding, God, to put together this grand plan of redemption to the earth for the people who, who will accept your gift, God, that we will be reconciled to you and that we will get to be clothed in garments of skin and that, that we, our life will be sustained in the fact that we wait upon the day where you should join heaven and earth again, God. We thank you for this book. We thank you that it is true that every page just screams Jesus. That is perfect and infallible and used for everything that we need to live a godly life. Thank you for Jesus and thank you for his death so that we would not have to die. So we now pray. Amen.